there's something about living in a foreign country that is very stimulating. It's very challenging to adjust to a foreign environment, to be somewhere, to use a new language, to get used to another society. But that same stress is also a stimulation. It's something that you grow. It, it changes you. Welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America, an immigrant human library, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States and around the world. Listen in as we add another story to our immigrant human library. Hello, listeners, and thanks for joining us on another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants living in the United States and around the world. Today, we have another amazing story to share with you, and it's that of Joseph Scholes. He's joining us from Japan. Welcome, Joseph. Hello from hot and humid Tokyo. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Joseph was kind enough to share with me his bio, which I'll go ahead and read for you all who are listening in. It's Dr. Joseph Scholz, right? PhD. I love to give respect once you've get, gotten there, you know, <laughs> give respect where it's due. So Joseph Scholz is an author and educator in the field of language and intercultural education. He's a specially appointed professor at the Keough University GIC Center, GIC. And he's the director of the Japan Intercultural Institute. He teaches in the Suda University graduate program in TESOL, T-E-S-O-L. Is that English as a second language kind of same idea? Right. That's right. So these are people who are studying to be language teachers. So I okay. teach this program. Yeah. And he is the creator and host of the Deep Culture Podcast, which is how I became aware of Joseph, of Dr. Scholes. He is also an author of, I think, two or three books, which include Transformation, Embodiment, and Well-Being in Foreign Language. And the other one is Language, Culture, and the Embodied Mind, and the Intercultural Mind from the Intercultural Press. And then the last one, I think, is The Beginner's Guide to the Deep Culture Experience and Deep Culture Multilingual Matters. He has lived for extended periods in Mexico, France, and Japan, and is fluent in English, Spanish, Japanese, and French. And again, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Simone. You know, you don't need to read all of that stuff. You and I, we are family because we are one of these lost toys who has made a life in some place other than we grew up. You know, we are both bridge people. So this is really not about, you know, our work or our professional life. This is about sharing some experiences, cultural bridge people. I am absolutely thrilled to be with you. And I just love your podcast and the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. And I'm happy to finally have you on the show. My husband and I listen to your episodes all the time in the car driving. And I think he's intrigued. I'm very intrigued with when I heard the topic of culture shock and, and all the other topics you cover. And we'll get into that a little bit more here later. But right from the top, if you could share with us, what is your heritage, the background of your family? Well, I grew up in California and my, both of my parents were born in California, which is unusual for people of their generation. So my family took pride in being Californian, even though California history is not very deep, except uh, if you've, of course, for white Americans like me, the California history is not deep. 
But I was always one of those people who wanted to leave home. And everyone else wants to go to California, but I was always one of those people that wanted to go out and see the world. The first inspiration for that was working at a part-time job when I had guests coming into the amusement park where I was working and they were speaking Spanish and it sounded cool. And I yeah. thought it would be cool if I could greet them in Spanish. So I memorized a few phrases. And then when I used them, they smiled and it was great. Of course, then they would say something to me and I couldn't understand. So I understood, okay, learning a foreign language is more than just a few phrases. So I went, I took some classes. I went to Mexico for a homestay program uh, for 10 weeks, and then eventually was traveling in Mexico. I came across this beautiful colonial city in central Mexico, Zacatecas, and this was in the days before the internet, so it was just a spot on a map. It was a beautiful colonial city with cobblestone streets, and my friend and I said, we have to find a way to live here. We don't want to be tourists we want to live here because when you're a traveler and a tourist, it's like being a scuba diver. You know, you you bring your air with you and you go and you're there for a while, but then you have to go back or else you make money to travel and then you spend your money and you have to go back. We thought, no, we want to live here. So we started a language school and I was living in Mexico for three years running this language school. And this was my first experience living outside the United States. And for most of the time since then, I've been living outside of the United States. It's kind of like it was a, I don't know, your spirit just, I don't know, you were intrigued by the outside and you just took off. There was no like thinking about it or getting exposure and then you literally like moved. I was always one of the people that wanted to get out of my hometown rather than one of the people who wanted to stay in my hometown. And, you know, there's something about living in a foreign country that is very stimulating. It's very challenging to adjust to a foreign environment, to be somewhere, to use a new language, to get used to another society. But that same stress is also a stimulation. It's something that you grow. It, it changes you. And it was that process of challenging myself to be in these other worlds. Because before I went to Mexico, I thought, oh, Mexico is a place to practice Spanish. But no, Mexico is not simply a place to practice Spanish. Mexico was another world that I had to learn to live in. And of course, later I went to live in Japan. And that was, again, another world that I needed to learn how to live in. And so it's this process of entering into this other world, uh, which really attracted me from a very young age. Could you share with us like what life was like during your formative years in California? I've never lived there. I've been on the East Coast, Midwest. Now I'm in the Southeast. But I visited LA and Long Beach. So that's my exposure to that side. It's beautiful. What was life like in California in your formative years? For example, you know, what were fun things you did? What was the culture like at the time? Music, you know, daily food. Because I think people who are listening from around the world, this is my first interviewing somebody from the U.S., right? So this is very intriguing for people to get a sense for from the West Coast. What's life like on that side? California is the place in the United States that many people want to go to. It's Hollywood, it's vacation, it's beach, but it's also freeways, it's also traffic. So the image of California is, does not always match up to what it means to actually live there. And 
I felt there were parts of this California lifestyle that really didn't fit my personality. So yes, I could go hang out at the beach. Everybody was concerned about what kind of car you drive, what kind of car you drive is important, you know, what neighborhood you live in. And I did not come from one of the rich neighborhoods. I was not one of the kids who spent weekends doing scuba diving or with a sailboat or with a boat. These were things that the rich kids did. I was not one of those rich kids. And California can also feel shallow. A lot of people come from other places. So it's very friendly. It's very open. People say, hey, hey, how are you doing? You can talk to the cashier at the supermarket. But to get a deeper relationship to have a community, that is more difficult in California. There are a lot of strivers in California who are trying to make something for themselves. And so what I found was that when I first traveled to Mexico, I found a very different way of living. I found a place where you could meet your friend on the street and they'd say, hey, why don't you come over? And you would go over right then and there and they would call their friends and people would get together. Or on the weekend, there'd be the central plaza and the, the boys would walk in one direction and the girls would walk in the other direction and they would be checking each other out. And this kind of close community was something that was so different from what I had grown up in California. And imagine in California, you everybody has to have a car. If you don't have a car, you can't go anywhere. So you're in this metal box and you go from one place to another and it can be very isolating. So here I was in a smaller town in Mexico, in this very rich environment, speaking a language which was uh, which was very rich and more emotional. My Mexican friends would say, "Hey, you know, you Americans are just like computers. You have no feelings. Like loosen up." So I had to learn how to express myself in a new way. So it was liberating. It was liberating to find that there's another world where I could be different. And then, of course, when I come back to California, there are things I appreciate greatly about it. But now it's appreciating things because I've been outside. So I appreciate it in a new way. I think that I now feel more comfortable in my life in Japan uh, than I do in California. And speaking of Japan, what is it like there? I am yet to make it to that part of the world, but very intrigued. What is it like living in Japan? What's the culture like? All we know over here is teriyaki, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I interviewed someone from Japan who's now living in the U.S., and she talks about the karaoke that's pretty big in the culture and the, the tea the whole tea experience around tea. And I would love to experience that. I was suggesting that she created here in the U.S. and I would definitely pay to come and experience it. So what is it like there? And what is, are there any history or connections with the U.S.? Well, I think there are kind of three Japans. One of them is traditional Japan and people are familiar with traditional aesthetics and art forms uh, and Japanese cuisine and Zen. But then there is a kind of postmodern Japan. You know, when you actually come to Japan, you do not see Zen temples everywhere. In Tokyo, for example, you are in a postmodern city with skyscrapers and super efficient uh, transportation systems. So there's modern Japan, there's traditional Japan. 
But in some ways, both of those things are kind of on the surface. You know, you can go to a tea ceremony, you can you can eat Japanese food, but you're still kind of an outsider. And you can walk around the streets of Tokyo and see the amazing Shibuya scramble with thousands of people crossing in central Tokyo. And you can see people dressed up in anime costumes, and you can go to the ramen museum and you can also experience this modern japan but then the third japan is kind of deep japan and that's what life is like for japanese people because japanese people are not thinking about tradition every day and japanese people are not thinking about anime or these things every day they're living very steady lives of responsibility of working hard and that's the Japan that I live in. I live in the Japan of living with and among Japanese. So that's quite different from the tourist experience of Japan. Of course, they're all interrelated. If you come to my house, you'll see that I have a Japanese aesthetic in my house. Of course, I do. My wife teaches at a university and she researches Japanese historical figures. So it's all mixed together. Um, but living in Japan is very different than the image that Japan has for people from the outside. Just wondered what's the perspective or social perspective of people, Japanese people of the U.S. and what are they wanting to know when they meet a quote-unquote American male who's now living in Japan? <laughs> you know, there are different categories of foreigners in Japan and I'm a white American male. So that puts me in that kind of white foreigner category. And, you know, they have positive associations about white Westerners. But at the same time, the image of the United States is not always positive. Japanese hear stories about, you know, murder and drug problems and social dysfunction in the United States. So they have an image that the United States is a kind of dangerous place. The image of Americans is very positive, but the image of the United States is not always as positive. On the other hand, there is this historical connection between Japan and the United States. Uh, of course, uh, in World War II, there was an after World War II, there was the American occupation in Japan. But by and large, Japanese society has been very open towards Western and American culture. So the overall, the associations are very positive. So it's pretty easy to be an American in Japan. I will say it's sometimes too easy because you have Americans living in Japan who spend years here but never really learn Japanese very well because they can go along as the, you know, as the privileged white American and people will try hard to speak to them in English and people will be nice to them. So they don't need to make that effort. And one of the things that I study in my work is why is it that some people adapt very deeply to a foreign environment? They, they really go local and other people kind of stay on the surface, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, they, they hang out with people from their own, from their home community, or they're kind of the eternal expatriate. So what is the difference? And one of the things I find is that we adapt because we have to. You know, if you're in a position where you need to adapt to get along, to make a living, to have a job, then you adapt. And if you don't have to, 
you know, human beings often take the escalator instead of the stairs. Yeah, you know, that path of re- least resistance, right? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But this has been one of my motivations living in Japan that I did not want to be one of the Americans who did not learn Japanese and who kind of just was floating on the surface. I really was interested in having a deeper experience. I wonder, like, what sorts of TV do you receive? Like, you know, is it international or is it very Japanese and and very kind of, you know, local to what's taking place in, in Japan? Or do you get a taste, a little bit of like what's going on in the U.S. and international news? I have Mrs. Internet in my house, so I have access to... <laughs> <laughs> she tells me whatever I want to know about the world, so... But the media environment in Japan is still very local compared to many places, compared to the United States, certainly. Local newspapers in the United States have really gone down. Uh, But people still, in Japan, people still have their favorite TV show that they talk to their friends about at work. Um, The number of channels on TV is relatively small. The national broadcaster, NHK, is highly trusted. So everybody turns on NHK in the morning to get the morning weather report. And so the society is more unified in that sense uh, than the United States, where there's just everybody seems to have their own source of media. Depending on what part of the country you live in, you're kind of exposed to a, a very different uh, social environment. It's much, It's more unified in Japan. I've experienced that, too, throughout my travels. Yeah, so I wondered... Um... So now I'm wondering what are some of what were some of the biggest challenges that you had in your initial move, right? So Mexico, you spent some time in France, in Japan with your family, you know, like how did you manage the initial years of adjustment and how did, you know, how how is that going for you now? Well, I think as for many people the first big barrier to come in to live in Japan was legal. You need to get a visa. You need to get permission to live here. Um, I now have permanent residency in Japan, uh, but I was very fortunate in that when I came to Japan, because I had a background as a language teacher, I could get a job as a language teacher. I could come with a tourist visa, and then if I could find a full-time job and find a guarantor, that I could then switch my uh, tourist visa to a working visa. So I was very fortunate to have that opportunity. So the first barrier is simply, you know, finding a way to support yourself such that I could gain legal status. And and but I was very fortunate to be able to do that in the first six months or so that I came. And then once I had that legal status, I was able to develop my career in Japan. And I'm kind of an expatriate who has become an immigrant. I started as an expatriate. But now consider myself, I'm a permanent resident of Japan. I do not have an intention of going back to the United States. But this is a kind of gradual immigration, you know, process by where you slowly come to understand that this is my home now. uh, And that for as much as I love my country and want to spend time there and have loved ones there, that that really my uh, my home is now is now in Japan. And so that was a gradual process. And for me. That came about because this was where I had professional opportunities, and this was where I could develop myself in the context of my work. I have a tendency to be a workaholic, mm-hmm. and I have a tendency to throw myself into my work. 
And one of the particular qualities for me was that not so many Western foreigners end up being highly fluent in Japan, Japanese, being able to work within Japanese institutions uh, together with Japanese people as equals. And I told myself that I wanted to adapt to the point that I could be, I could hold my own uh, in Japanese society so that when I needed a bank loan, that I could go into the bank and handle that myself. That when there was a, a faculty meeting, uh, that I could give my reports in Japanese, that I could play politics in Japanese. And of course, if you're speaking a foreign language, you're never or almost never really going to be at the same level. And it's kind of unfair in a sense. But that unfairness is also part of the challenge and part of the richness of being in a foreign environment. You know, it's it's a challenge that you welcome because it makes you grow. Um, so it was this opportunity to grow professionally that really hooked me into into Japan, and uh, and now I'm I feel very integrated uh, as a foreigner in Japan. And just to be clear. I'm integrated, but it doesn't mean that people think I'm Japanese. Obviously, I will always be a foreigner in Japan. People will always see me as an outsider, as an other. And I'm always having to mitigate. I'm always having to, you know, navigate this role that I have as being the, the outsider who is insider. So I'm the outside insider or the inside outsider. But that's a role that I'm comfortable with. That bridging role is what I'm comfortable with. I'm sure that gives you quite an interesting perspective too, being on the inside, but yet you're still an outsider. And after so many years, I'm sure people might wonder what your perspective of both the U.S. and Japanese and and uh, Japanese culture, etc. Simone, you you yourself absolutely know that when you've lived in different societies, it's like a superpower. You see things that other people do not see. You see the United States in a way that that Americans do not see. And you see your home country in a way that people from your home country do not see it. And so this is a superpower and it's a tremendous gift. At the same time, it can be a burden. You know, it's tiring to constantly be abridged, to have to go back and forth, to feel sometimes like you have to choose, you know, do I handle it this way or that way? Or I understand where they're coming from, but I just don't want to do that. Or this is something I just cannot accept about this society. So it is like a superpower. It's wonderful, but it can be a burden. I completely, you know, I get that. We've talked before. I'm I'm having my own journey on a daily basis. You know, I actually assumed that you went to Japan for uh because of love, that you were married and you decided to move, but it seems like you met your wife later on. You actually moved there primarily because of your interest um and in, in work and then later on came the marriage and and family. Okay. I actually and, thought it was love. <laughs> And can I just say that my wife has did her undergraduate work in the United States, and she's also an educator, and she also does intercultural education. So on our first date, one of our first conversations was how hard it is to find the right partner when you're living between cultures, because, mm. you know, 
I'm an American in Japan. So if I marry some a, a Japanese woman, in, in my case, a Japanese woman who does not know my home society, then there's always something that she cannot relate to. But does that mean I want to marry an American in Japan? But then we're not integrated into this society. So it's one on our first date, we talked about how hard it is to find the right partner. And I said, uh, I was talking to my wife about this and I said to her, or my, this was on our first date. And I said, well, you know, she had lived outside of the, of Japan and she had lived in Kenya for a year when she was younger. So I said, you have this international perspective and just the fact that there's that there may be foreigners in Japan, but just the fact that they're foreigner doesn't automatically make them this highly intercultural international person. You know, you have shallow people as well. Yeah. And she said, and she said, oh, thank you for saying that. You know, I'm I'm not allowed to say that not all foreigners are international, but because <laughs> if I say it, it sounds like I'm against the foreigners, but you're American. So you can go ahead and say that not all foreigners are highly international and, and highly, you know, intercultural. So but this idea of the relationships that we have, uh, you know, it's it, it can be a difficult question. Who we're with and so much depends on our partner in, in the way that we live in our society. How neat that you were able to meet someone who studied and experienced the U.S. in Japan, who is Japanese, that gives you like the flavor of being integrated and the not support, but the actual impetus to want to inter integrate, right? And her to your culture, probably. So both of you seemed very balanced. Did you think that? Oh, absolutely. And we had certain things in common. So on our again, on our first date, I found out that she went to a junior college in California. I also had gone to a junior college. So we were both people who had shown up on a junior college campus having no idea what it meant to go to college because this was not something that I had much support in when I was young. So we kind of had this shared experience of expanding our world through education, of expanding our world by going to another country, of expanding our world by learning a foreign language. So this is kind of has been really the core of our relationship, this shared journey that we're on. So I wonder after, is it two decades? How long is it now in Japan? 20 years, 20 plus? Oh, uh, more than 20, probably 25. I mean, I I also lived in France for a couple of years, and I went back to the U.S. for graduate school for a couple of years, but probably 25 years in Japan, yes. You're probably fully, fully, almost integrated, right? So I'm wondering, are there any lingering areas of cultural adjustment that you constantly have to work on? It sounds like the language might be uh, very good for you. You definitely have the your wife at home to help you understand interpretation of things. But for you as an American in Japan, like, are there anything that you're like, man, I'm still not getting that? <laughs> oh, of course. You know, <laughs> as anyone who moves to a country and has to learn a different language in a different society will always, I mean, I think mostly will always find things that still require adjustment. And I will say that because of the nature of Japanese, sometimes I'll be writing an email and I'll say to my wife, 
I'm not sure what honorific expression to use here. Can you help me with an email? And I've been here 25 years and I still come up against language barriers, for example. It is still so effortful for for me to read a Japanese newspaper that I that I naturally read an English newspaper because for me to read a Japanese newspaper is more like work and less like pleasure because there are these big linguistic barriers and human relations are different in Japan. People, you know, I'm a middle-aged man. Middle-aged men in Japan do not easily make friends with other middle-aged men. So how do I expand my network? How do I you know, have these relationships? There are these things which always require extra effort But again, as I say, that extra effort is kind of also what I like about this. It's, you know, it's that extra challenge and it's always a source of growth. So I've always got another kanji character to learn. I've always got something else to observe and it's never boring. Oh, yes, I I imagine so. It's never a boring moment. I think recently you had to come back. My condolences regarding that. I wonder how do you experience California or any part of the U.S. when you return? Like you've been out for 25 years. Like, what is that like? Do you feel like a foreigner now when you come back? I feel like a spy. I feel like I am this person who has this other agenda. Like I I will sit in a restaurant And I will listen to the conversation at the table next to me because I'm fascinated to hear what the Americans are talking about because I am not in this environment. And I will look at the menu on the restaurant and I will will order a salad and this salad will come and it will be in this huge bowl. (laughs) It will be more food than I can possibly eat. And of course, it's totally familiar to me. Of course, when I talk to people... Uh, it's it's effortless. You know, it is my country. It is my society. And also, I'm from California. I'm a Spanish speaker. So there, you know, the Spanish speaking population in California is, is, is quite large. And I'm very comfortable switching back and forth. So I'm very comfortable. But I make a distinction between my identity and myself. So my identity is I'm an American. That's the label that is on me. That's how people see me. That's how I present myself in the world. But myself is kind of the territory of the familiar. What is the world that I know? What is part of my body? And I have spent a long time in Japan. So a big part of myself, of my of the my psychological territory is Japan. Japan is familiar to me. And as long as Japan is now familiar to me, then there will be a way in which the United States is unfamiliar simply because there's this gap. So I've got a single identity, but I've got multiple selves. Uh, And so in California, I can feel these different selves kind of, you know, going back and forth between feeling that everything is easy and also feeling that things are alien. And I will say, that Japan is a collectivist society with where people are very polite, where you get great service in restaurants, where there is not graffiti, where there is great physical safety, where there is not a high level of homelessness, where there is not a high level of political conflict, yes. uh, where the neighborhood you live in does not determine how people see you. 
the car that you drive is not the way that people look at you. People do what? not. What you mean? People live like this still around the world? There is a place. I will say <laughs> that when you tell someone in Tokyo your neighborhood, they do not judge your social class based on the neighborhood that you say. And when you are on the train. And you look at the people around you. You cannot say this person has money. This person doesn't have money. This is simply not the way that people look at it. Japan has a very hierarchical language, yes. but a very egalitarian society. The United States has this philosophy and, and founding principle of equality and everyone being free to pursue happiness. But American society has tremendous uh, differences in wealth. It has tremendous inequality in spite of this uh, philosophy or this commitment to, uh, uh, to equality. So I do feel when I'm in the United States, this rather harsh, competitive, winner-take-all feeling in the United States where how much money you have really does make a big difference in the kind of life that you live. And that's less of the case in Japan. The, it, the amount of money you have is less of an impact uh, on the life that you live. So I do experience comfort in the United States and I, agree. I love the Mexican food, but I also feel uh, the challenges in American society in a very deep way because I've experienced other things. And I'm going to guess, you know, you too, when if you go back to your home society and you're with family and hanging out in the neighborhood, it, it's it's a very different feeling. In the United States, it's not always, you know, it's not always so community oriented. You can, it's very easy to get isolated. Definitely. I have to actively on a daily basis, reach out and form my own community. And as I expressed just how many times I've had to move. So I moved here from the U.S. and I moved with my job, lived in Mexico for two years. And my job had me out of the D.C. area going overseas. I was on a plane, it seems, every month. I was just like constantly in and out of a new place. And I'm constantly having to make meet new people. And it's like my brain, sometimes it feels like my brain erases so I can make space for the new. I can't explain that because when I go back to my high school with my friends, I cannot remember certain things. Like it's just, it's hard for me to recall because I've had so much newness of every, I'm constantly in a new culture, a new setting. And then part of the issue is there's parts of me that I've had to adapt or assimilate in order to operate in the workspace socially. And when I go back, I get very uncomfortable with self-promoting my, you know, of, you know, Simone is this, because it's a very collective aesthetic. People are very uncomfortable with you just walking around with your chest really high and just talking about yourself because it's very collectivist. And so people look at you a certain way if you just all about that. And so I have to really learn to just switch certain things off. Whereas I had a lot of difficulties learning to self-promote when I moved here. And I still deal with that. One of my jobs required me to write my own evaluation. I had the hardest time 
sitting down and like writing an evaluation about my work and self-promoting myself and, you know, like coming up with an elevator pitch and just talking about me, 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 me. It was just, I'm getting better, but it's taken me like 20 years to actually get a little bit more comfortable with doing that because you realize you're going to get left behind if you don't assimilate. This is just how the society works. And so I go back and forth constantly with like, who am I becoming? Am I going to lean to the more capitalistic perspective of this individualistic mindset? Or do I want to be moved back to another place where I can be more collectivist? And, you know, so there's parts of me that's more comfortable with that collectivist expression that you're sharing. People just exist and value people for just who they are. And and not necessarily for the monetary or accumulation of things that you have, you know, and relationships are more important. I'm walking that out on a daily basis and continue to evaluate as I have a five-year-old daughter. What is she mm-hmm. absorbing? Who will she become? Who will I become in another 10 years? Because yeah. that will mean that I am going to become that thing that I probably don't like. <laughs> And this is the terrible challenge. Like we talk about adapting, about say learning a language or adapting, but adapting when we're changing our behavior, like you can change your behavior for a little while without it really touching you more deeply. But over time, if you are changing the way you act at a deeper and deeper level, it challenges your values. And if you're yes. not, you know, if, and you say, okay, I've got to like go into this interview and I got to talk about myself. Okay. Once or twice, that's fine. But if you have to do that every day, then these deeper values are going to get challenged. And you're going to say, is this the person I want to be? But again, if I don't do this, then I want to survive in this society and I want to get along with people. And the thing is that for many Americans, this kind of self-promotion, what we're calling self-promotion, they don't call it self-promotion. They just call it being themselves. And they only see it in positive terms. Like, oh yeah, of course, they're just going to be myself. But if you if you come from a more collectivist background, it does feel like this constant, you know, me, me, me. Yeah. Um, and so there's the superpower again, right? You've seen both of those worlds it's hard to figure out. And, you know, you have a five-year-old, as you say, and this is the time when she's getting formed, you know. And so, and of course, children are very sensitive to their environment. And so the environment that she's in, the school that she's in, the friends that she's in has, the neighborhood that she's in is going to have just this tremendously deep impact. And I see that in my work. I work with a lot of young people who've grown up between different societies. And many of them, face this challenge of conflicting values. And it takes one who is walking the walk to really get the depth of challenge and inner contemplation that comes with that, you know. Um, Some people actually assimilate, no problem. And I wonder if they even contemplate. But for me, I see the big jarring differences with just being so individualistic and winner takes all what's in it for me versus looking out for community and having a communal impact or giving back and, and so forth. And so I'm constantly trying to balance what that means for me. And um, I'm sure a lot of people are walking, are walking that shoes too. 
And I, I also think that the image that the United States has for people outside of the United States has a big impact because certain people will be very attracted to this whole idea of striving, this whole idea of making something for yourself. And there are many immigrants who bring that mindset to the United States, and they're so highly motivated. And it's true that you can strive and you can often get ahead. Many people do get ahead and create wonderful lives for themselves. And if you're oriented towards that kind of striving, uh, then it can be just a, a fantastic experience. If you're not oriented so much in that direction, or if you're an immigrant who didn't really choose to come, <laughs> you know, who, who came out of necessity, uh, simply because they needed to make money, for example, to send back home, and it was not a choice to live this striving lifestyle, then it, you know, of course, there's such a wide range of experiences. People come, uh, immigrate to the United States for so many different reasons. But I, I really, I think it's one part of American culture and society that many Americans themselves are not so aware of because they take it so for granted. And that's also can be isolating as an immigrant that you, it's hard to talk to Americans about this because they, they may not really get it. I'm constantly having conversation about the podcast and the type of conversations that I'm seeking to have for better perspective, better understanding, because sometimes there can be tensions within different groups, right? With the immigrant population. And um, I'm trying to really understand like, what is that American experience for somebody who's native? And I find here that you you have to seek out international experiences and international news, as opposed to people who are outside of the borders of the U.S. tend to know a lot more about what's going on here, about the culture, whether it's pop culture, the music. I don't know if it's because it's exported or what, or is it the media, the movies or what it is, but people tend to know so much more. And then when I interact with other people, it's almost like they come with the expectation that I'm supposed to know like everything about American culture, like what their experience in <laughs> little small town in <laughs> South Carolina. And I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm, what do you know about my country? So why do you have this expectation that I'm supposed to know something local to South Carolina, for example? It was interesting, <laughs> that experience there. So yeah, so I'm trying to bring people on to really come and talk to me about what's your walk? What has been your journey? And so forth. So, But I have to seek out. Like if you go outside, you might get access to BBC and other international news from France and so forth. But you really have to seek out here in the U.S., to find out what's going on about in the rest of the world, unless it gets to the top of the news, like the war in Ukraine and so forth. But I hardly see anything about Australia, unless this was the fires that was going on or the fire or the smoke coming from Canada or heat wave going through. Was it France that was having heat waves? But that's all you know. You have no idea what's going on in the rest of the world. <laughs> there's, there's this odd thing, really, that... If you're living outside the United States, the, the presence of the United States in the world in, in many ways is quite large. Join us again next time for part two of this episode. Friends, as always, please subscribe, comment, and share if you enjoyed this interview. If you're passionate about telling immigrant stories, our team is looking for help. 
If you're willing to help with podcast production, social media, or Patreon management, please reach out to us. You can also donate on our Patreon if it's easier for you. All the links are in the description below. Thank you. We thank our listeners around the world and we appreciate your continued support as we build our human library. Please remember to give us a five-star review, subscribe and share with your friends, family and circle of influence.